It's your friend, Texas Eddie here with some fun facts about Texas. You know, the greatest state in America. Our state flower is the blue bonnet, which they bloom from late March to early April. Let's us Texans know that spring is here and the hot, miserable summers are right around the corner. That's your fun fact about Texas. I'm Texas Tootie, proud mom of a Texas law enforcement officer. Back the blue. Welcome to the Doc and Carolyn <laughs> podcast. This is episode number nine. We are glad to be back and I'm glad you punched in. Check this out. We have to give a shout out to our peeps in Chile. This is crazy to me, but we have double digit downloads in the Republic of Chile. And I, I, I'm t- shocked by that. We really, really, really appreciate yes, that. Yes, we do. My peeps in Chile. I like, I like. <laughs> in this week's episode, we'll continue with part two of our interview with Michael Kilgore, our son who has a smoking hot career in private equity finance. It's pretty interesting. His perspective on his J and what he does. Uh, so we'll continue that. The NP is in, is on the way. And we're doing a travel blog this week. We went out to LA to visit with Michael and his fiance Camille and meet Camille's parents. So we had like the movie, right? No, it was nothing like the movie, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> Last week, we talked about glyphosate and how it sprayed on most grains and we need to avoid them. This week, we're going to go over the Environmental Working Group's list of the Dirty Dozen. That's a list of foods that are sprayed with the most pesticides. Don't worry, we can still eat them. Number one is strawberries. Number two is spinach. Number three is kale, collard, and mustard greens. Number four is peaches. Number five is pears. Number six is nectarines. These are some of our favorites, and we always have them here in our house, and I highly doubt we're going to be giving them up. So what we do is either buy organic, or we fill the sink with water and add either baking soda, vinegar, or salt. We let them soak for an hour, then rinse them off really well, and you're good to go. That's six of the Dirty Dozen down, six to go. See you next week on the NP is in. Our version of Meet the Parents was actually a lot of fun. We knew them a little bit. We talked to them on the phone before. Yes. So, but this was, this was the first face-to-face meeting. And we I'm, talked to Fran quite a bit. She's a sweetie pie, and it was wonderful to get out and finally get the chance to see her face-to-face. Yes. And Mark is second-gen sheep farmer. And when I say sheep farmer, the only thing I know about sheep farming is what I've gathered from Looney Tunes <laughs> when I was a kid, right? But but this is a big commercial operation, 10,000 plus animals. That's a flock, babe. Eight, a very big. 8,000 acres. They uh, manage the animals and ship. They have a huge kosher component of their, uh, of their business and they ship kosher meat to Jewish and predominantly Muslim communities all over the country. They also have a commercial part of their their, uh, their acreage where they grow the feed right. for the animals as well. So it's, it's a huge operation. How did they grow people food too? Or just feed? A lot of corn and, and soybeans. I get the impression that that's for the animals mostly. Okay. Um, but if you wanted to chow down on some of those <laughs> you know, corn pods and soybeans, I'm sure Mark would be okay with that. So. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about walking out of LAX and, and getting out into LA, even at the point when we were waiting to be picked up, is the number of electric cars. Right. Yeah. You don't see that many here. No. I mean, in other places uh, in Ohio, I didn't see many. I mean, I saw some. I, f- I saw a fair amount. But L.A., I mean, it, it was every other car. I think, um, well, Michael has a Tesla. Yeah. And I think it makes sense for him because everything is just really close. Yeah. They they rarely have to drive very far. And mm-hmm. when they do, then they take Cam's car. But for us, I don't oh, think te- it would work. No, it's impractical for Texas. Right. And every make, every model, exotics, uh, all kinds of electric vehicles was one of 
of the first things that kind of stuck out. Cam came out to the airport, picked us up, took us back to the house. They have a lovely house in a great neighborhood. Funny thing about LA is the cost of the real estate. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. So when they were here, Cam and Michael came over for Thanksgiving and they were asking us, you know, about the land that we purchased for our build. And which I thought was kind of on the expensive side. Well, it's $80,000 an acre in this community. When I, when I tell her that she says, is that all? But if you remember when we started looking, I said, there is no way I'm (laughs) paying that much money for that land. I do remember that. Well, she just went on to explain that it is not uncommon to see land in Los Angeles or in Los Angeles County that will start at $500,000 an acre. That is insane. Listen to that. I mean, just the way it even sounds coming out and hanging in the air. Listen, <laughs> LA has its appeal. I mean, it's beautiful. You have mountains and the beach. Combine that with the beautiful weather. There's a lot of incentive to, right. to love it out there. It's not enough incentive to pay $500,000 <laughs> for, for an, an acre. acre. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> So we got to their house that first night and we didn't do much. The next morning, though, we got up and Cam was nice enough to uh, let us borrow her car. And we drove to Venice Beach. $30 to park, $70 for breakfast at the fig tree. Uh, And what did we have? Eggs and bacon and just normal breakfast food. We walked down and what's funny is our is our kids warned us before we went to Venice Beach. It was like, okay, well, you can go there, but make sure if you if you go down this way that you don't go too far because you'll start seeing weird things. <laughs> I mean, weren't, weren't they funny, though? Yes. Cam was cute. Yeah, just being overprotective, showing some love. They were so concerned that I ended up buying a knife, man. I went out, I said, look, I'm going to get a pocket knife at least because I didn't carry when I went out there. You know what? I'm one of these people. I'd rather be prepared I agree. Than than walking around empty handed, you know. I agree. And, and uh, so anyway, so that's why I don't go a lot of places without you. Yeah. So we went to the Warner Brothers studio. Yes, that was a lot of fun and very interesting. You go down into West Hollywood. The first street sign that I noticed was Bob Hope Drive, and that's right there at Warner Brothers Studio, Universal, Paramount, Netflix. This is the center, literally the epicenter of entertainment for the world. The thing about Warner Brothers Studio, they have an open lot system. If you have the money, you can go there and shoot your movie. So people from all over the world use those back lots and those sound stages to shoot movies. And I was excited because my favorite show or one of my favorite shows is Gilmore Girls and I got to have a picture on the gazebo. And then you yeah. you forced me by this point to watch a couple of the not force me. We enjoyed a couple <laughs> of those shows together, honey. And I think you like them better than you will admit. Oh, no, it, it, it's funny. I mean, the smart writing on the show and the characters. Are I pretty, knew you would like the dialogue. Funny. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. But to, to see those lots and to see behind the scenes was very, very interesting. So we're taking this tour and the tour guide is telling us this is where this is shot. This is where Friends is shot. This is where the Jennifer Hudson show. It's in this building right here. We got to get uh, off of the the tour and go into a working soundstage where the series All American is shot. We got to go into facades of the, like the pool had no water and it had some kind of plastic (laughs) piece of film, you know, know, on on top of what looked like a pool, but it was not a pool. There was no water there. Right. The living room and kitchen was, you know, all of it was fake. Everything from turning the faucet on. There's a hand pump they used to pump water out of the faucet. (laughs) They don't have any plumbing, you know, so. I was really interested when we were there because I've watched that show too and 
when you watch the show, the house looks huge. Yeah. But when you're there on the set, it's tiny. Yeah. And then we went to the comedy store. Now that was, well, what, what do you say about that? Um, there are how many, how many, uh, comics were there? there? I think there were, I think there were six in an MC. Okay. So seven comics, over half of them, over half of them made sure to get digs in at Christians and not just a little one, you know, Yeah, we're big boys and girls. What I have to deal with as a Christian, you know, having a comic tell some bad jokes. If that's as, as much as I have to go through, considering what Yeshua did to rescue me, I'm good with that. It's not a problem. I just won't go back. That's the best they can do. That's the best they have to offer. I really don't care to go back. Yeah, that's a good point. And if you can picture in your mind, West Hollywood is literally, as I mentioned before, the epicenter for entertainment. That's where the famous man's Chinese theater is, the the walk of stars, the footprints in the concrete. It's all right there. All the billboards of the current shows. I mean, that's 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 an actor's dream to 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 ride down Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood and look up and see your face on a billboard. That's a dream. I'm sure. So and so the people, the performers there are not just performing for for people like us paying customers. They're performing for the entered for their break in the entertainment business. They're they're performing to get a series. They're performing to get a movie role. The material that they do is the material that they know this is their shot to be on the stage at the comedy store. They know that's what the industry wants. Yeah. So we so we were listening to what the industry wants and they're disseminating that all over the country. Yeah. So um, so that was a blast. And then the trip home was pretty uneventful. Here's a question. So we, when we got that, <clears throat> I did want to bring this up. So when we got that Papacitos, yes. I got a big old funky burrito, man, <laughs> like a steak burrito uh, <laughs> with uh, guacamole and sour cream and Pico de Gallo. It was, I mean, it was delicious. But my question is that plane was full, the one to San Francisco. So we're three rows, four in the middle, and then another three on the other side of the plane, but we're packed and they're like sardines. Yep. So is it bad manners for me to open my funky burrito in between? I was in the middle row on that flight. You ate yours before we got on the plane. Half. No, I just ate half. Oh, and, then, okay. and then I saved the rest of it for once I got on the plane. Okay. Well, I ate my whole thing on the plane <laughs> because, so. and I hear all of the, you know, oh, that's so rude, yada, yada, yada. Now, if I'm in a kindergarten class, I'm not going to start eating in front of these children. But if I'm on an airplane between two adults, if you wanted a burrito, you should have gone to get a burrito. Yeah, or if yeah. you wanted something to eat, you should have gotten it before you got on the plane. So no problem. If you want to break out some kind of whatever funky meal you want, I'm some fish, eat what I want to eat, some fish heads or something. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not bad manners to just break it out in the middle of the air, in the middle of the airplane. I don't think they have fish heads at the airport, <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying though? Yes. I mean, if you can buy it at the airport, you can eat it on the you plane. You should expect it to be on the as plane. As far as I'm concerned. All right. Now, part two of our Everyday People segment with Senior Associate Michael Kilgore of Century Park Capital Management Partners. Senior year, I start taking, you know, more finance classes and actually learning, you know, what else is out there. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, I'd only taken one finance class and done that internship. I was taking, you know, more high finance classes like, you know, derivatives and, uh, you know, a class on the stock market and a class on mergers and acquisitions um, and other classes like that. I would say I became very interested in the the mergers and acquisitions space. Um, That was a pretty competitive class and I was good at it. I was actually in it with uh, my best friend, Christian, who also so, you know, works in private equity and uh, kind of the investment banking world. He was kind of on that track all along. He was like 
dead set on it, even at that time. Did y'all have conversations about that world? Yeah, but I it, I wasn't even interested. I uh-huh. like, was like, I mean, because the whole stigma around investment banking is like you have to work, you know, 80 to 100 hours mm-hmm. and you have to 4.0 grade point average and undergrad in order to even get a job in investment banking. And you have to memorize these interview booklets in order to, you know, be able to get a job. In High standards. Banking. Yeah. So I was just like, I, don't, I mean, I liked what I did last summer. There's no reason I don't need, even need to like <laughs> yeah. interview for those jobs or right. anything. And, and, I, and I also don't feel like working 80 to 100 hours. Yeah. So I was not interested at the time that, but then we took this class and I was like, okay, this is actually, you know, much more interesting than what I was doing, you know, last summer, mm-hmm. maybe merge and acquisitions is actually pretty interesting. But then I felt, and I think I actually was a little bit behind the eight ball. I mean, compared to what I just described, having to have a 4.0 grade point average, having to, you know, have memorized these interview booklets, having to have networked, you know, uh, investment banking world and private equity world at the time, I was a little bit behind the eight ball. So I kind of had to, visualize a way to get to private equity that was not the traditional route if I wanted to get there. But you but you still went to PNC at the yeah. end of the day. You took yeah. that job. Yeah, so I took the job, um, but I was only there for 11 months. So the whole time you're there, are you looking to get into what you're actually want to do? Yeah, PNC was interesting in Chicago because their headquarters is in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. um, with another kind of semi-headquarters in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And that was where some of the higher finance jobs were located. Mm-hmm. And if I wanted to get into a group that I was actually interested in what I was doing, I would have had to move to one of those cities, but I wasn't interested in doing that. Okay. So that gave me the choice to kind of start looking for other jobs in Chicago. I didn't know exactly if I wanted to do like private equity, wanted to do investment banking, wanted to do, you know, another, a, a different, you know, finance related job that was just a little bit more difficult. Sure. Um, so I was kind of interviewing all over the place, but where I found myself was going to something pretty similar to what I was doing. I, I went to another debt oriented company. That is that Marinon? Yeah. Was, so so tell me, about, so yeah. So focus on them for a minute. Tell me, tell me about that company. What did they do? Yeah. So Marinon is a private debt company. All they do is provide debt that needs to be repaid with an interest rate to private equity companies. Mm-hmm in order for the private equity companies to, you know, buy out companies. As I was saying, I do now, Mm -hmm. we invest equity where we own the shares of of companies, Mm -hmm. but then the other half or, you know, 75% of the purchase price of the companies that we're buying is financed via debt. A company like Um, Marinon. A company like Marinon, yes. So at the time I took an analyst job at Marinon, I wasn't even, I would say there were like two roles at Marinon. Mm -hmm. One role is looking at new opportunities, looking at new investments and analyzing them and deciding if you're going to invest in them. And then the other role is looking at the investments that you've already made and kind of managing them and just kind of reviewing the financial performance and that type of stuff. And I feel like second mentioned role, it's looked at a little bit, it's kind of looked a little bit down upon, like it's not as technical, not, it it doesn't take somebody, doesn't take a genius to do that job. And that's the job that I took mm-hmm. at the time. And okay. that's, and that's kind of how I felt. Like it was like, I felt that I wanted to move over into the investment role, mm-hmm. um, doing underwriting new deals and new opportunities, but that just wasn't happening in the, in the two years, two and a half years that I was there. I also, when I first started at Marinon living in Chicago after maybe one month went on vacation and went to Los Angeles, one of my good buddies from college mm-hmm. for no reason. It was just, we were just like, let's go on vacation. We've never been to LA. Like that 
that sounds like a cool place Here to go. Here we go. Yeah. And it was April of uh, probably 2018. Uh, I had just gone through my first winter in Chicago and it was <laughs> extremely good cold. In, good incentive to it, go to LA, right? It was, it was still really cold at the time and it was, I mean, I was kind of over it. So we went to LA for five days and kind of at the end of that trip, I was just like, I mean, why, how does a place like this exist? I mean, it doesn't get cold here. It doesn't rain. I was very surprised. I, I think, I mean, I think later on, maybe it was a different time I went to LA, but I remember I called you and I was like, dad, why did you raise me in Cincinnati, Ohio? Like this is, it's amazing out here. What did, yeah. what did you, what did you make doing? up your mind then? Uh, eventually yeah. I'm going to be, be working and living out here. Yeah. But I just started, you know, a new job. So of I didn't want to like, you know, leave immediately after about maybe a year and a half, I started trying to look actively to California. There were a couple of uh, opportunities that I interviewed for that I didn't get. One of the conversations that I had, I reached out on LinkedIn to a former Evan Scholar that was living in Los Angeles and working at True West and had an initial, just reached out to him and I said, I see that we have similar backgrounds. You went to Miami of Ohio, you moved to Chicago, you're working finance and you moved to LA now. And I just want to have a conversation about, you know, how you did that. Just, and, you you know, just jet off an email. Yeah. Tell me what his response was. And he was extremely responsive. I mean, he said that he's really liked LA. He, he kind of gave me some advice on like what I would need to, you know, be good at in order to eventually get a job there or like the type of, you know, modeling skills that I would need and like type of interview skills that I would need in order to eventually get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, well, if uh, we're ever looking to hire an associate or anything like that, uh, we'll reach out or just like, let's just keep in touch. And that was that. That was probably about a year before I moved to LA. I would say I also at the time, at the same time, interviewed, I saw a job on LinkedIn uh, for an analyst position at Century Park Capital Park. I work at Century Park Capital Partners now and I interviewed and I interviewed for that job, you know, when I lived in Chicago. Oh, and I didn't know that. It was, you know, this private equity company that I work for now. Yeah. I, you know, went through, you know, probably three rounds of interviews, did like a modeling test uh, for an Excel modeling test and all that. Um, and they said they really liked me. I did like a IQ test and like all this, all this like cognitive and ability test. And they like, really so. did. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, then, I, I mean, I ended up getting the call and they said, you know, we're actually hiring somebody local in L.A. True you know, West did. No, no, this was Century Park oh. at the time. Oh, uh-huh. They said, we're hiring somebody local in L.A., you know, let's keep in touch. You know, if you're ever out here, like we can, you know, get in touch. But, um, you know, we really liked you. So, like, just like keep in touch if you're ever out in L.A., we can. You know, so very, you know. very positive right. feedback. Yeah. Right. And I, you know, you never know if like they're being serious or not. Um in this case they were, but yeah. So fast forward six months from that moment, from talking to both True West and Century Park, I saw a job posting for a True West associate for the company that I mentioned that I talked to former Evan Scholar. I reached out back, I reached back out to him and he said, you know, oh yeah, like, thanks for reaching back out. We totally forgot about you candidly, yeah. but you know, uh, yeah, we were hiring, we're hiring an associate. It's a good lesson to, um, you make contact with people, you kind of wait for them to reach back out to you and, and they could yeah. legitimately have good interest in you. They get busy. And I mean, at that time I went out to LA to interview, um, in like, you know, November of 19. So you left uh, Chicago in November and went yeah. to LA. That must've sealed yeah. the deal. I think that's actually when I made the call to you and I was like, this is crazy. It's <laughs> so nice out here. Ended up getting that job to start in August of 
2020. So I had like eight months at my job at Marathon where I had, I guess, just like I knew I was going to leave, you know, after eight months. And that was tough. I remember talking to you through that period. That was not easy. Yeah. And then COVID hit and I I was like worried that I was going to lose my job. I was worried like they weren't going to hire an associate anymore. Like I was going to get a call, but everything worked out and moving out there during LA. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. I mean, honestly, I mean, it was a great decision. Like when I, when I look back on it, it was one of the, one of the better decisions that I've made. I think, yeah, I don't know. I think the the seasons kind of affect me. I think the winter I kind of get down and I'm like, I don't really oh, like, I'm not seeing the sun. Oh, that's like, science. Yeah. yeah that, that's yeah. for real. Yeah. Very so much. I think moving to LA like made that a lot better. Um, and the, the job that I got at True West was, uh, was great too. And I really enjoyed my coworkers. It was a small company. Um, private equity. So that, com- that company was still on the private debt side. Oh, private still, debt. Okay. So it was similar to what I did at Marinon mm-hmm. on the private debt side, providing debt to private equity companies to buy out companies. But that delineation I made between the investment team that's making the decisions on new investments and, you know, the portfolio team that's, you know, managing said investments. I was on the portfolio team when I was at Marinon. This job that I got at True West, I made the jump over to the investment team. And I was finally underwriting new investments and working on. And you you must have loved that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it was kind of like, I, I kind of like felt good to, to tell, you know, Marinon like that, oh, I'm actually moving over to True West. I'm going to be on the investment team, by the way. Were they, was everybody's like, wow. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what they thought. I mean, they were like, yeah, honestly, we understand like that. Yeah. That's a good, good move. And you're moving to LA. Like that's good for you. Like yeah. Both of those are awesome. you know, big moves. So, and this is mind blowing for me again, as a, as a parent, you always hope your kids do great things. And in your profession, you're, you're doing, uh, doing some, some pretty big work. So the average investment in the average company that you're involved with, uh, analyzing and purchasing, tell me the average cost, the average, uh, numbers involved in the deals that you make? So we invest in companies that are typically 20 to a hundred million dollars in revenue. We typically invest 10 to $30 million of equity in those companies to buy them. The overall purchase prices of those companies would be like in the 20 to 50, 50 to $70 million range. An interesting thought. The picture of it is very interesting to me. You walk into some of these companies and you, you know, I've been on in a big company that's being bought. I was working at a radio station that was being purchased by a clear channel. And I've seen the suits walking around. You're one of those suits that comes into, into that environment and the, and the people, everybody's cleaning up their desk and you know what I mean? There's a nervous tension in the air because you're there. Is it that kind of thing? Well, not, not exactly. Um, I would say we actually try to draw exact opposite depiction okay. of that. Okay. I think those people do exist, uh, but it's mostly up market. So like the companies that I described are actually considered lower middle market companies. Those are smaller founder owned companies. Mm-hmm. A lot of the bigger private equity firms that are doing like billion dollar deals, Mm -hmm. basically they will buy companies that are already pretty well developed. There's not much more you can do at that point Mm -hmm. other than, you know, cut costs. So that's kind of where they get some of the stigma because when they buy a company, they're they're slashing. They can do, they can cut costs and that can increase the profit. What we're doing is more on the front end when a company is still founder owned, maybe like the founder hasn't, you know, invested in, you know, a sales team hasn't invested in a, a high powered CFO has an invested a potential in upside. operation. So like we're actually doing the opposite. We're investing in the company and providing more capital and more resources to grow the company rather than just focusing on the bottom line and cutting out costs. So when you have a meeting then, obviously my, my depiction in my head was wrong. So when you go in and you begin to 
cultivate a relationship with the founder. What is that like? I mean, is that is that your point of contact? Is that how it kind of starts by reaching out to that guy and and developing a relationship? And in my mind, that makes sense. Is that what it it is actually? Yeah. I mean, a lot lot of times, um, a lot of times it can be a referral or it can be, you know, some of our direct outreach a lot of times. I mean, what I like about my job is that if we see an industry that we're interested in, we can do a lot of work up front to understand the industry and try to find an executive that understands the industry even more than we do kind of point us in the right way to talk, to ask the right questions. Then at that point, we'll kind of, you know, shoot out a lot of emails to the business owners and try to find a specific company to be introduced to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll bring that executive with us and we'll say, Hey, we're working with somebody that actually understands the industry. We understand finance. We're not, you know, operators ourselves. We understand that you have something special with your business. Um, if you were would want to, you know, have a conversation to uh, explore a partnership with us and this executive that actually understands the in and outs of your industry, you know, let us know. And then we'll hop on the phone and, um, you know, just start learning about the story of the company, learning about where the owner's head is. If they're looking to either partner with a private equity firm, maybe take some chips off the table and start investing in the company. Um, it's a little bit less risky if, you know, you have a partner alongside you sure. with institutional capital that can help invest in the company. Or if they, you know, are on the way out, if they want to, you know, work through a transitionary period of over the next, you know, two to five years, then that can be, you know, a value proposition for us. So we can like help recruit a new, you know, CEO to run the company and type and those type of activities. All right. Enough about work. Let's talk about romance and this September wedding. How did you and Cam meet? (laughs) Yeah. uh, I mean, I I wish I had a, uh, you know, crazy love story to start with, but uh, we we met on Hinge, the dating app in LA. So Cam was actually driving from Chicago to LA to move out there after law school um, to start her first job. And her friend made her a Hinge profile on the way out there and kind of set the location near where she was going to live in LA. Yeah. And I guess they were interested in my profile. And then I uh, responded, the, the the Hinge app will give you a notification and say like, this person is new to Hinge, like if they're, what she was, you know? Oh, yeah. And my first intro line was welcome to Hinge. Oh, that's yeah. so romantic. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we, we met in LA and went on a couple of dates and then, um, yeah, I've been dating for around three years now. Dang, it's been that long, huh? Seems yeah. like, it yeah. seems like it's uh, been been less time than that. Thailand was, was amazing. I mean, we're very outdoorsy. We like hiking and, you know, hanging out at the beach and all of that. And Thailand has a little bit of all of that. And yeah. it's very uh, also multidimensional. We went to three different cities, went to Bangkok, Chiang Mai, and Phuket. Bangkok is, you know, like the, the New York of Thailand, the biggest city in Thailand. Chiang Mai is more of like a jungle town. It's a city with that's surrounded by jungle and mountains. So we were able to, you know, go on some hikes, go see some waterfalls and go, go see elephant nature park, elephants that have been rescued and the, from the wild or from, uh, from actually people that are like using them in circuses and stuff like that oh, in, wow. in Chiang Mai. So that was cool. And then the last city was Phuket, which is more of a beach city. And you know, that was just great to be able to hang out and just chill at the end of the trip after doing some more, you know, upbeat activities the whole trip. Son, fantastic to have you on the show. You're a gentleman and we love you and we're very proud of you. Thank you. The Doc and Carolyn podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is the exclusive property of DNC Media, LLC. 